Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Crecy was a catastrophe for France. At least 1,500 great nobles and knights had been killed, along with countless other humbler combatants. King Philip VI's reputation was badly tarnished, but more defeats soon followed. After Crecy, Edward III and the English army marched north and beleaguered the port of Calais. Powerfully fortified, Calais resisted stoutly. Edward III subjected it to an epic year-long siege. Up to 32,000 men and hundreds of ships were involved. The French made numerous attempts by land and sea to break the English grip on the city. However, with the memory of Crecy still fresh, they did not dare to risk another pitched battle. As the siege of Calais ground on, the French prevailed upon their Scottish and Breton allies to mount operations to distract the English. The Scots, under King David II, invaded northern England in the fall of 1346. The Scottish army met local English defensive forces at Neville's Cross near Durham. Once again, the English combination of dismounted men-at-arms and archers made short work of the Scottish Shiltrons. Among the heavy Scottish losses was King David, who was made prisoner. In Brittany, Charles of Blois, the French claimant to the duchy, besieged the important town of La Roche d'Arienne. On June 12, 1347, Edward III's lieutenant in Brittany, Sir Thomas Dagworth, launched a surprise attack. Though badly outnumbered, Dagworth handled his men-at-arms and archers, all fighting on foot, superbly, and routed the enemy. Charles of Blois was captured and joined the King of Scots in the Tower of London. Calais finally surrendered on August 4, 1347. According to a well-known story told by Jean Froissart, Edward III was furious at the obstinate resistance of Calais' people and intended to massacre the defenders of the city. When entreated to show mercy, the English king declared that six of the leading citizens must come to him, heads and feet bare, ropes around their necks, carrying the keys of the town and castle. These six would be executed, while the rest of the people would be spared. Eustace de Saint-Pierre, the wealthiest citizen of Calais, volunteered to be sacrificed. Moved by his example, five others soon followed. When the six presented themselves before Edward III, all the lords of England begged him to spare them. The king, however, refused. At last, Edward's queen, Philip of Hainaut, who was heavily pregnant, interceded. She managed to change her husband's mind, and the six were spared. In 1884, the city of Calais commissioned Auguste Rodin to create a sculpture commemorating this incident. Rodin completed his monumental Bourgeois de Calais in 1889. The work stands outside the City Hall of Calais, while casts can be found in Paris, New York, London, and Tokyo. For Edward III, the conquest of Calais was a striking achievement with far-reaching consequences. Calais and its hinterland, the Pale, formed another English enclave in France. It gave the English armies an invaluable gateway into northern France, one not dependent on fickle Flemish friends. Blessed with an excellent harbour, Calais also granted the English naval command of the Narrows of the Channel. 
Crecy, Neville's Cross, La Roche d'Arien, Calais. 1346-1347 was an anus mirabilis of English arms. But the Hundred Years' War was then brought to a halt by an even greater catastrophe. In 1347, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, had arrived in Italy, born from Constantinople by Genoese galleys. The next year, it swept over the Alps and spread throughout France, then vaulted over the Channel. The pandemic killed a third to a half of the populations of France and England. Given the awesome scale of this calamity, I think it's astounding that the war would resume at all. Yet resume it did. By 1350, the Black Death was beginning to recede in intensity. English and French negotiators met at Guines, near Calais, to attempt once again to negotiate a peace treaty. The negotiations foundered on the now-familiar rocks of the English claim to the French throne and the French refusal to surrender feudal rights over the English domains. King Philip VI of France died in 1350. Although he had begun his reign well, royal authority and French military power had been badly weakened by the disasters at its end. His successor, John II, immediately threw himself into restoring both. He passed reforms aiming to put the French army on a better organizational and disciplinary footing. On the battlefield, French commanders strove to find solutions to the English tactical system of dismounted men-at-arms and archers fighting on the defensive. French responses were shaped by the character of their army, heavy on men-at-arms and lacking the firepower to match English longbowmen. In 1351, at Guy de Nel, Marshal of France, chose to dismount and mass together most of his men-at-arms. De Nel was clearly recognizing that war horses were the part of a French force most vulnerable to arrows. Yet he kept two smaller bodies of mounted men-at-arms on the flanks of his main battle, intending to use them to sweep away the English archers. De Nel's plan failed, and the French were defeated, most likely because the mounted wings were too weak and were driven off by the longbowmen. A few months later, at Ardre, near Calais, the French commander, the Lord of Beaujou, decided to dismount all his men-at-arms. Although Beaujou himself was killed, his men smashed through the English forces, killing many and capturing most of the rest, including William Bennett, the English captain of Calais. In 1352, Guy Denel was involved in another battle at Mauron in Brittany. This time, he charged one large unit of 700 mounted men-at-arms at one wing of English archers. The charge succeeded in routing the archers and driving them off the field. But the English centre and the other wing managed to defeat the French in hand-to-hand combat, in the process killing Denel. After the battle, the English commander, Walter Bentley, had 30 longbowmen beheaded for retreating. Although the French record in these minor battles was decidedly mixed, it did demonstrate that, contrary to popular belief, they were not inflexibly bound to traditional methods. Rather, these battles showed, as Matthew Bennett points out, the French were thinking tactically, that they were experimenting, and that these experiments were carried out all over France. John II's efforts to rebuild royal authority and military strength soon ran afoul of the perennial problem of French disunity. A powerful and influential figure in the French royal court was Charles of Navarre. Scion of a branch of the Capetian family, 
Charles could make a claim on the French throne. Ruler of the Kingdom of Navarre in the Pyrenees, he had also inherited vast lands in Normandy. Hugely ambitious and completely lacking any political scruples, he would spend most of his life playing off the French and English kings against each other in order to advance his own interests. In the 16th century, he would receive the nickname the Bad. In 1354, Charles of Navarre arranged the assassination of his main rival at the French court, the Marshal of France, Charles de la Cerda. In order to escape the royal wrath, Charles of Navarre then allied with King Edward III of England and agreed to a treaty to divide France between them. To head off civil war, John II came to terms with Charles, awarding him even more lands in Normandy in exchange for giving up his English alliance. But instead of being reconciled, Charles the Bad was soon plotting again with Edward III against the King of France. While this intrigue was unfolding, the main theatre of action in the Hundred Years' War was shifting back to Aquitaine. Fighting in the English-ruled duchy had a different character than in the other theatres. No major battles were fought in Aquitaine until the very last of the whole conflict, Castillon in 1453. Instead, Aquitaine was the scene of raids, skirmishes, and above all sieges. Malcolm Vale, one of the leading authorities in English on Aquitaine, states that there were already over 1,000 castles and forts in the duchy at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Furthermore, the principal combatants on the English side were the warlike Gascon nobles. Although distinct from the English in language and culture, the Gascon were nevertheless fiercely loyal to the Plantagenet kings. But the Gascon nobles also mingled their participation in the public war between the kings of France and England with pursuit of their own private feuds. The greatest of these feuds was between the houses of Armagnac and Foix. As we'll see, as we'll see, this feud would help alter the course of the Hundred Years' War at a crucial juncture. In 1355, Edward III dispatched his eldest son, Edward the Black Prince, to take command at Aquitaine. In the decades since he had won his spurs at Crecy, the Black Prince had shown himself to be a gifted and dynamic military commander. He was also regarded in both England and France as the epitome of chivalry and the greatest knight of the age. When he arrived in Bordeaux, capital of Aquitaine, with an army of 2,200 English men-at-arms and archers, he was greeted with jubilation by the Gascon nobles. According to several chroniclers, they were looking forward to much booty. The Black Prince did not disappoint them. He launched a chevauchée south and east through the lands of the Count of Armagnac and into Languedoc, almost reaching the Mediterranean near Narbonne. The raid took enormous loot. It also devastated areas of France previously untouched by war, and because French forces did little to stop it, the chevauchée also exposed the King of France's impotence and inability to protect his own people. The next year, the incessant intrigues of Charles the Bad at last forced King John's hand. The king had Charles arrested and ordered the execution of four of his closest followers. In response, Charles the Bad's brothers took up arms in rebellion. A full-fledged civil war erupted in Normandy and much of western France. Even worse, Charles' supporters, the so-called Navarrese faction, turned to the King of England for support. Edward now began calling himself Duke of Normandy. More tangibly, he made plans for an ambitious French campaign. Although renewed war in Scotland prevented him from going to France in person, 
Edward planned a two-pronged attack. One prong consisted of a force under one of Edward's most trusted commanders, Henry de Grossmont, the Duke of Lancaster, landing in Normandy to aid the Navarrese. The other prong comprised the Black Prince leading a chevauchée north from Aquitaine to link up with Lancaster at the Loire River. In August 1356, the Black Prince marched out from Aquitaine with an army of 6,000 troops, two-thirds of whom were Gascon. They pillaged and burned their way up the west coast of France, amassing an immense amount of plunder. When the English and Gascon force reached the Loire, the Black Prince discovered that King John was in the field with a powerful army and had already forced Lancaster to retreat to Normandy. The Prince decided to turn back and return to Aquitaine. The French king set off in pursuit. On September the 18th, 1356, the French army caught up to the English and Gascon as they were trying to get their booty-laden wagons over the Moisson River near the forest of Nouaillet, some 12 kilometers south of Poitiers. The Black Prince went to ground in a strong defensive position, a low hill behind a hedge and marshes. He then negotiated with the French for a truce and safe conduct back to Aquitaine. King John rejected the English terms. The next day, September the 19th, the two armies prepared to fight. Did the Black Prince want a battle? His retreat from the Loire and his negotiations to be allowed to withdraw to Aquitaine have convinced most historians that he did not, and that he only fought because he had been cornered by the French. Yet Clifford Rogers argues that this was another example of the use of the chevauchée to provoke a battle on English terms. Just like his father at Crecy, the Black Prince baited the French until he found an ideal battlefield. He then used the truce to further strengthen his position. His army was a highly skilled, cohesive, confident force. The troops, both English and Gascon, were hardened veterans. Their English commanders had fought at Crecy. There is no doubt that King John wanted a battle. The Black Prince's chevauchées had badly hurt his royal authority. Moreover, the French monarch could be confident of victory. His army badly outnumbered the English and Gascon. The French comprised 12,000 men-at-arms, 2,000 crossbowmen, and 2,000 other infantry. They thus outnumbered their enemies by better than two to one. Unlike at Crecy, the French were well-rested and fully deployed for battle. And not least, King John and his commanders were convinced that after their experiments during the battles of the early 1350s, they now knew how to beat the English tactical system. They dismounted their men-at-arms, except for two divisions of the most heavily armored men mounted on the best horses in the army. The French plan was to use the horsemen to sweep away the enemy archers, then smash the rest of the English army with massive assaults on foot. The Battle of Poitiers began with the French unleashing their cavalry in a furious charge, aimed at the English longbowmen, who were deployed as usual on the flanks of their dismounted men-at-arms. Because of the thick hedge and the maze of marshes, the French could only approach the English line at two points. The English archers managed to hit the densely packed horsemen from in front and the sides, an enfilade in military terms, and drove them away with heavy losses. The leading French foot division, commanded by King John's heir, the Dauphin Charles, immediately moved into the attack. As they advanced, they were hit by a hail of arrows, causing heavy losses, disrupting their order, and damaging their morale. The French at last struck the Englishmen at arms. A ferocious melee ensued. 
but the English and Gascon eventually prevailed. The next French division was just beginning to move forward when disaster struck. Its commander, the Duke of Orléans, lost his nerve and fled the field, taking half of his men with him. The rest made a half-hearted attack before retreating. Having repelled three French attacks, the English and Gascon were now exhausted. The archers had shot off most of their arrows. But the last French division, commanded by King John himself, now took its turn. It was the largest of the French units and still mostly fresh. As it lumbered forward, the Black Prince made two daring decisions. First, he ordered Jean de Grailly, the Capitale de Bouche, the leading Gascon commander, to take a force of 60 mounted men-at-arms and a 100 archers around the French flank and strike the king's division from behind. Second, with a shout of, Advance banners, he commanded the rest of his troops to charge the French. The two armies collided, and the fighting was the fiercest of the entire day. The English archers shot their remaining arrows at close range, then waded into hand-to-hand combat. The battle was balanced on a knife edge when the Capitale de Bouche appeared behind the French. His archers sent volley after volley into the unprotected backs of the enemy. Then, with a great shout, the Capitale's mounted men charged. French morale broke, and their troops began fleeing. King John and a knot of faithful men fought to the end. The king's companions were all slain, including Sir Geoffrey de Charny, the most famous French knight, the author of the Book of Chivalry, and the bearer of the royal banner, the Oriflamme. King John himself was captured, as was his son Philip, who, too young to fight, had nevertheless spent the entire combat at his father's side, calling out, Watch out there, sire, or to the right, whenever he saw an attacker. Poitiers was an even more shattering defeat for the French than Crecy. Once again, French losses were extremely heavy. 2,500 noble men-at-arms had been killed, along with uncounted other lesser troops. The prisoners included the Archbishop of Sens, who had fought in armor, 17 counts or viscounts, 22 bannerets, and over 1,900 other men-at-arms. But the most significant loss was of course King John himself. With the king confined to the Tower of London, the reins of power had to be taken up by the 18-year-old Dauphin Charles. France imploded. The Navarrese faction demanded the release of Charles the Bad. The civil war that had begun in Normandy spread eastward into the heartlands of France. In 1357, the burghers of Paris rebelled, led by Etienne Marcel the Prévost de Marchand, or mayor of the city, and supported by the Navarrese. The next year, rebellions spread into the countryside with a massive peasant uprising called the Jacquerie. To relieve some of the strain, the Dauphin released Charles the Bad. Soon he was plotting again with the English to partition France. Meanwhile, Edward III was negotiating with the captive John II for his release and a peace treaty. While these discussions went on, A truce existed between the two kingdoms, but to pile on the pressure on the French, the English sponsored much informal warfare by freebooting mercenaries, the infamous Routier. One of the leading Routier captains, Sir Robert Knowles, conducted raids into the Auvergne, a region of central France formerly little touched by war. In 1359, Edward decided to mount an invasion in order to push the French into making peace. He landed at Calais on October the 28th with an army of 10,000 men-at-arms and mounted archers. What followed was the longest chevauchée of the war. 
During it, the English army threatened Reims, traditional crowning place of the French kings, and Paris. At last, on May 8, 1360, at Bretigny, near Chartres, a peace treaty was concluded. Edward received full sovereignty over Calais, Ponthieu, Poitou, and an enlarged Aquitaine. He also accepted a ransom of three million gold coins for King John II. In return, he agreed to refrain from calling himself King of France. For England and its monarch, the so-called Great Peace of Bretigny was a triumph. In the words of Anne Curry, Edward had surely won this war, for he had gained what his predecessors could only have dreamed of, sovereign rule of half of France. 